today's scripture reading is from Joshua 17. Um, so I was tempted to use my smartphone and hit play and just play Joshua 17. And I actually have it all loaded, so I could actually do that. But I haven't had to read Joshua yet, and all the other presiders have, so I didn't think it would be fair. So if you turn to page 163 in your pew Bibles, we will, I will try to read Joshua 17. Joshua 17, verse 1. This was the allotment for the tribe of Manasseh as Joseph's firstborn. That is, for Machir, Manasseh's firstborn. Machir was the ancestor of the Gileadites, who had received Gilead and Bashan because the Machirites were great soldiers. So this allotment was for the rest of the people of Manasseh, the clans of Ebenezer, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemedah. These are the other male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters, whose names were Malah, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, Teraz. They went to Eleazar, the priest, Joshua, son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So Joshua gave them an inheritance along with the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. Manasseh's share consisted of ten tracts of land besides Gilead and Bashan, east of the Jordan, because the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh received an inheritance among the sons. The lands of Gilead belonged to the rest of the descendants of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh extended from Asher to Megmethath, east of Shechem. The boundary ran southward from there to include the people living at En Tapua. Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua itself, on the boundary of Manasseh, belonged to the Ephraimites. Then the boundary continued south to the Kana Ravine. There, there were towns belonging to Ephraim lying among the towns of Manasseh, but the boundary of Manasseh was the northern side of the ravine and ended at the sea. On the south, the land belonged to Ephraim, on the north to Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached the sea and bordered Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. Within Issachar and Asher, Manasseh also had Beth Shan, Abilium, and the people of Dor, Endor, Tanash, and Megiddo, together with their surrounding settlements. The third is in the list is Naphoth. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephites. The people of Joseph replied, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots both those in Beth Shan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephron and Manasseh, You are numerous and very powerful. You will, not only, you will have not only one allotment, but the forested hills country as well. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours. 
Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. So just say as um, it was Jason's turn to read the book of Joshua, so now it's my turn to take a stab at preaching through the second half of Joshua. Um, if you're a visitor this morning and you, or you haven't been here for a while, um, we're currently in a sermon series uh, going through the second half of the book of Joshua. Uh, we covered the first half of Joshua last year, and so now uh, we're going to finish up the book uh, over the summer. Um, and if you've been with us, you know, you know this isn't a really easy section to speak on because the majority of these chapters talk about land distribution. I mean, the narrative goes into great details, spelling out which tribes get what piece of land, detailing like the various boundaries and borders and, 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 yeah, and just, you know, where, where and, you know, the territories meet, how they're divided. I mean, it's, it's pretty tedious stuff. And you got a taste of it when Jason was uh, reading the scripture this morning. Uh, I think if you were reading the book of Joshua on your own for like your personal devotions or Bible reading, you would just quickly skim through this, these chapters or just skip it all together. Um, but you know, this is still God's word for us. And so we want to hear what God has to say to us through these chapters. And in our particular text, there's a couple interesting dialogues that are going on. Um, that I want, that I want us to look at more closely this morning. Um, a couple of years ago, President Obama gave a speech about this jobs bill that they were trying to pass. And um, after the speech, the next day they had a, 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 a press conference, and, and one of the uh, reporters asked the press secretary—I forgot his name—but he he asked the press secretary a question. And, and, and so to give you a little background, Obama was kind of talking about uh, the jobs bill and he kind of made the statement about how you know, our, our nation is, is one of, of God and God we trust. And he was saying how God can help us, you know, could help us, you know, if we all pull together and help uh, pass this jobs bill. And so one of the reporters the next day um, asked this question. He was like, you know, yesterday... President Obama was giving this speech about the jobs bill, and he was talking about this phrase, in God we trust. And she was like, don't you think it's inappropriate or maybe wrong to put God's name into this jobs bill? <laughs> and you could see the press secretary was, was clearly caught off guard, and, and he, he had to think about it for a moment. He's like looking at his nose, just staring at the podium, trying to figure out what to say. And, and, and he said this, he said, I believe in the Bible, the phrase is, the Lord helps those who help themselves. And President Obama was just invoking this verse to try to tell people that we need to pull together and that God can help us, so we need to all you know, work together and, and try to get this jobs bill passed. I don't, I don't know how many of you, I assume many of you are familiar with this phrase. How many of you have heard this phrase or, or something like this, like God helps those who help themselves or the Lord helps those who help themselves? How many of you have heard? Most of you? Okay. I won't ask how many of you believe that um, because it's not really true. But if you believe it, it's, you're in actually good company because in a, in a survey done by the Barnum Research Group several years ago, uh, 75% of Americans believe this phrase to be true 
and believed it was in the Bible. And that, of those 75%, they believed that 40% of these people claimed to be born-again Christians. So you're not in bad company if you believe this and, and, and you think that this was in the Bible, but actually it's not. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. And I want us to see from the text today that this is not a truth that we can affirm. Uh, and to be fair, uh, actually the next day the White House released a, a statement acknowledging that the statement was not in the Bible. This was not a verse in the Bible. So they, some people complain and they acknowledge that this was incorrect. And so this verse, once again, is not in the Bible. But many of us feel like, you know, if God, if we, if we work hard, if we do what we can, God will help us because God helps those who help themselves. But once again, we're going to see through this chapter, through these two different dialogues, that this is not true at all. Um, chapter 16 of Joshua, we didn't read that. The chapter 16 begins the account of the land distribution for the descendants of Joseph. And specifically, these were Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And chapter 16 spells out the territory that the Ephraimites received. And then chapter 17, as you heard from our scripture reading, deals more with the Manassites. And here, once again, in chapter 17, you find the accounts of two separate dialogues with Joshua from two different sets of people. Two different sets of people who had very similar requests, but had two different outcomes. And the first groups were five daughters of this man whose name I don't want to butcher, so I'm just going to call him Zelo. So Zelo had these five daughters, and we find in verse 4 that these five daughters went to Joshua and Eliezer, the priest, and told them, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. And as we read what follows, Joshua gave them an inheritance of the land. They asked for a piece of land, they got it. They didn't have to work hard to work or do anything, they just asked and they received. The second group of people we find in the beginning of verse 14. And so these are some of the leaders of the tribes of Joseph, meaning they were representatives from both the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And in verse 14 we read, The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. And Joshua's response to them in verse 15 was, If you are so numerous, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear the land for yourselves there, in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephites. In other words, what Joshua is telling them is that you're not going to get any more land. If you want more land, you know, clear it out yourself. But you're not going to get any more than you have. So here, these clans come to Joshua. They ask for a bigger portion of the land. Joshua says, no, you're not going to get any more. And it didn't matter what they did, how hard they may try to work for it, they weren't going to get any more land. So the question was, why did one group get their piece of land, get their requests granted, and the other group was denied? And to find out why, we have to look at the motives behind each of their respective requests. And so for Zelo's daughters, we need to understand that they did not ask for a share of land for personal gain, nor to assert women's rights, but they did so to advocate for others. 
And let me expand on this more. And, and to do so, we actually need to go back to the book, book of Numbers because this is where the story originates. Because their statement in verse 4 in chapter 17 of Joshua comes from a, an account that happened in Numbers chapter 27. So if you, might, if you have your Bibles, flip back to uh, Numbers chapter 27. So as it is um, with an Asian society, so it was with Jewish society back then that males were more favored and they received more rights as well as more responsibility than the females. So understandably, you know, the parents wanted to have at least one son in the family. But, you know, here's poor Zillo. You know, his firstborn was not a son. He tried again. He still didn't have a son. A third time, he didn't have a son. You know, it's like one of my Chinese pastor friends whom I met when I was in Texas. He and his wife's firstborn was a daughter. They tried again. They had another daughter. They tried again. They had another daughter. They kept trying. You know what they ended up with? Seven daughters. Zero sons. Seven daughters, zero sons. But, but to his credit, he, they, they did all the daughters are great. Some of them were married. You know, he put them all through college. It's, it's amazing. And, and a pastor's salary. I don't know how he did it. But yeah, he had seven daughters and zero sons. And here we have Zillo in the same situation. Five daughters, no sons. And so we read in Numbers 27 at the, at the end of verse 1, starting at the end of verse 1, it says this, that these daughters came forward and stood before Moses and Eliezer the priest, the leaders of the whole assembly at the entrance, at the end of, at the, at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own set, his own sin, and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no son. Give us property among our father's relatives. So remember, at this time, the Israelites were still in the wilderness, waiting to enter the promised land, and they were making preparations to enter the promised land. In the chapter right before this one, in Numbers 26, you can see that a census was taken, and it was taken just of the male population because this was how God was going to divide the land. He was going to apportion it according to the male population. And so learning of this, Zelo's daughters recognized that there would be a case of double jeopardy for their father. <clears throat> Not only was he punished by dying in the desert, thus he wasn't able to enter the promised land, but in addition, he would also be punished because he would receive no share of the land to preserve the memory of his name because he only had daughters. His, there was no sons to give any land to. So this was in contrast to others who died in the desert, but yet their names were able to be preserved, to be carried on, because their male descendants would inherit the land. Okay, so there was the issue. Most males, they were punished for sinning by dying in the desert, but yet their name could be preserved by um, their male descendants receiving land. But here was Zillow, who died in the desert, but then he was additionally punished because he didn't get a share of the land, because he only had daughters. So this was their plea. This was the case that they were making to Moses and Eliezer. And this was an un- Precedent and request. This, this 
was an incident that never happened before. So Moses, he didn't know what to do. So he went to the Lord. And in verse 7, God responds to Moses. He says, actually what Zillow's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. And then not only that, we won't go into that, but if you want later on, you can read the preceding verses. God also uses this case to establish this hierarchical succession of how uh, land is to be passed down when a man doesn't have any sons. So we see once again that their request was not out of concern for themselves, not for their own personal gain, but it was out of concern for their deceased father as well as the tribal clan whom they wanted to ensure got their fair share of the land. You know, once again, it was not that they needed it for their own survival or prosperity because their father died and they were women, because they would be taken care of, it says later, by the families to whom they married into. And tempting as some people may want to do so, but once again, it was not an issue of women's rights and God taking care of women, because if you do a little more study, you'll find that this land that they, they receive will actually revert back to male ownership once it becomes possible to do so. So once again, it wasn't for their own personal gain. It wasn't for women's rights or anything like that. But it was out of concern for others, for their deceased father, for their tribal clan. And we can contrast this with the tribes of Joseph back in verse 14 of Joshua 17. Because unlike the daughters who asked not for personal gain or asserting their rights, they asked out of greed and arrogance and fear. Once again, verse 14 in Joshua 17 states, Why have you given us only one allotment of land? We are a numerous people and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. And what they were saying actually was true. They were a very numerous people blessed by the Lord. We won't do so now, but... You can go back to Genesis and see how Joseph, as well as Ephraim and Manasseh, they actually received special blessings from the Lord through their ancestors. And so true to their promises, the Lord greatly increased this clan. But we also need to look at the land that they were given. And this is where we can look at a map. If you have a Bible that has maps, um, you can turn to that. We usually, if you have a study Bible or Bible map, we hardly ever look at the map section. But this is a great time to do so. I think all the maps are the same. Um, it's map four in your Bible in the back, and it talks about the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know if you can see it. Um, this is a map up here. But you can see that when you take into account the land that the Manassites and Ephraimites in inherited, both east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan, you can see, hopefully you can all read it, Manasseh, Manasseh, Ephraim. They actually got one of the biggest portions of the land, if not the biggest portion of the land. So it wasn't that God was being unfair to them. They knew that they were, he knew that they were a big tribe. He gave them a large portion of the land. But yet they asked, Joshua. I mean, basically, the, their tone that they said it, if you wanted to literally translate what they were saying, they're like, why did you give us only this one lousy portion of land? Because we are so numerous. And so not only that, but the people of Joseph knew how the land would 
was to be divided. Referencing back to Numbers 26. Numbers 26 in verses 53 to 56, God tells Moses, The land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a large inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among large and smaller groups. So the process goes like this, is that they draw a a lot, which is a small stone, out of a bag. And by drawing this lot, this small stone, it determined who gets what piece of land. So we already saw that God instructed Moses that larger tribes were to get larger pieces of land, smaller tribes were to get smaller ones. And this is what happened. We can see that on the map. And when the lot was cast, you know, it just confirmed the land that they were given. And the conviction was that drawing lots was not just a random act of chance, but that it was God who was guiding the process of drawing the lots. And he was ensuring who got what piece of land. It was out of his wisdom that he determined who got what. So for this tribe of Joseph, these tribes of Joseph to challenge the inheritance really was to challenge God's sovereignty and wisdom in determining who receives what land. So this, once again, was just arrogance on their part. And so Joshua challenges them. He says, well, if you want more land, there's plenty of land in your assigned area. You just have to clear it. Go to the hill country. Remove the trees. You know, but then they respond back. And in doing so, they refilled this third motive, which maybe was the bigger issue for them. They complained to Joshua in verse 16 that even if they took the hill country, that would not be enough for them. But then, and here's, here's the catch, is that there were also Canaanites in the land who have chariots. And so it becomes apparent that maybe the bigger reason than previously given was that they were just afraid of the foreigners in the land. And, you know, never mind that God had previously defeated a group of Canaanites with chariots in chapter 11 of Joshua, and they were there to witness that. You know, never mind that chariots were actually very ineffective in the hill country and least effective in forested areas as opposed to, you know, battling on the plains. You know, they were scared. And if you were with us a few weeks ago when Pastor Chuck preached on Joshua 14, compare their attitude to the faith of Caleb. If you remember in Joshua 14, Caleb, who at that time was 85 years old, told Joshua, he says, I am still as strong now as before, so give me the hill country that God has promised me, and I will go defeat the foreigners in that land and drive them out. And so here's one man's Caleb, one man, 85 years old, Caleb, saying, Give me the hill country, I'll drive up the foreigners. And here's the tribes of Joseph saying, don't give us the hill country, even though we're a numerous people. We're afraid of the foreigners. I mean, this this conversation shouldn't have even been necessary for all the tribes knew before they even entered the land that this was something that they were to do no matter what piece of land they received. 
In Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 20, or 16 to 18, Gad the Israelites. In the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. They knew this. They knew they were to trust God to drive them out and that God would enable them to do so. But they didn't have any faith. And interestingly enough, as a side note, elsewhere in chapters 16 and 17, it mentions twice that the descendants of Joseph did not destroy the Canaanites, but allowed them to remain in the land with them. And eventually, you would see later that they would pay the consequences for it. So when you look at the motives behind both requests, it's easy to see why one was granted and one was not. But, you know, what do these accounts mean to us? You know, what application can we draw for them? You know, to be honest, I think it's hard to actually draw universal truths from these accounts because anything I say will not apply to every case. But as I was studying this passage, let me offer you at least a couple of thoughts on what I can draw from this passage. And from the first example of Zelo's daughters, I think one thing I, I find is that we can be bold in making requests to God in order to advocate for others. We can be bold in making requests to God to advocate for others. And as we saw, the motives in asking this of Eliezer and Moses and even Joshua was not out of selfish gain, but it was to preserve the memory of their father. It was to preserve, or it was to ensure that the tribes would receive the land that they were fairly entitled to. I mean, so will God grant favorable answers to prayers prayed on behalf of others? No, He won't always do so. But I think this at least shows me that we can, we should not be afraid to ask. And I think there's much less of a chance of a prayer being answered when prayed out of selfish gain, out of a need for personal, uh, you know, just personal pride, self-centeredness. You know, one other thing related to this is, I think Pastor Chuck has mentioned a couple of times, is as we've been thinking about how to apply the book of Joshua, we've also mentioned that we can apply it in the context of helping to fulfill the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you remember, in the book of Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would give him numerous descendants, that he would make these people into a great nation, and that all nations on earth would be blessed through them. Prior to Joshua, the first promise was fulfilled. As we can read in Scripture, that Abraham's descendants became as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then the book of Joshua begins the fulfillment of the second promise in that the Israelites will come and take the land and will be on their way to become a great nation. But here we are still in the period where this third promise is being fulfilled, and that is of being a blessing to the nations. And we understand the way that we are meant to be a blessing to the nations is that from the line of Abraham came Jesus Christ, 
who through his life and death offers us redemption and a restored relationship with God. So in spite of the fact that we rebelled against God, in spite of the fact that we rejected him and sinned against him, through Jesus Christ, our relationship with God can be restored and we can be reconciled back into, our, into a relationship with him. And so we become a blessing to the nations by sharing the, this good news of Jesus Christ because this is the greatest blessing that any nation, that any person could receive. So in this sense, I feel like we can take a page from these daughters and that we can be bold in asking God to use us to proclaim the gospel for the sake of others so that we can be a blessing to others. I remember just a couple months ago, I was talking with one of our college students and he shared with me how, you know, just, just a week or two before, he and another student went out to try to share the gospel with, with just people that they would meet, uh, you know, walking on, on the street or, you know, around campus. And after trying to speak with various people, they, they were having just very little success. And they recognized that they went out before spending hardly any time in prayer. And so they were convicted and they stopped. And they just sat, sat on a bench and they started praying and they asked God if he might bring about someone who needed to hear the good news, someone that they could share the gospel with. And right after they prayed, an international student came by whom they started talking with and they were able to have, you know, engage in some conversation. And when they asked the student if he would like to know more about Christianity, the student shared that he was actually very much interested because he had some friends who were Christians, but he didn't know much about Christianity at all. So he wanted to learn more. And so they, they you know, brought him inside and just sat down and talked with him a little more, and they were able to share the gospel with him. You know, it's not that he became a Christian right away, but they presented the gospel message and told him the good news of Jesus Christ. And I would say it was very much because they stopped and they recognized that they needed to ask, and they were bold in asking God to bring about someone whom they could share the good news with. The second thing I drew from this passage is that I think we, we should not ask to be given more if we're not doing what we should with what we already have. You see, the tribes of Joseph wanted more territory, more than they had been given. And Joshua's response to them was, you've been given enough land. You just need to work at kind of redeveloping it. Clear out the trees. Remove the foreigners. But they didn't want to. They didn't want to do the work. They were too focused on the cities that were already cleared and, and were established, and they just wanted to move into that. They just focused you know, on this small portion when there is just a lot more territory that they could have received that they had put in the work. And as I thought about that, you know, maybe sometimes... We wish that God would expand our territory, that he would increase our ministry, that he would multiply our influence over people. But maybe before we ask God to give us more of these things, we need to make sure we're faithfully doing what he's asking us to do with what he's already given us. You know, maybe we need to take time to assess you know, where we're at with God and, and you know, in our places of work, in our campuses, at school, in our community. And for us as a church, are we already doing 
what we can with what God has given us? Are we being faithful to do what God has called us to do? You know, one other interesting thing I found in the study of this passage is that this whole country that Joshua is telling him to take over, it was actually one of the most, if not the most fertile areas in the region. And so for the agrarian society that they were, Joshua is telling them to take this land, and it was the best land that they could have gotten to grow their crops and to be fruitful and abundant in their harvest. And so in the same sense, you know, who knows what God might have in store for us if we're faithful in carrying out what he asks us to do in the places that he already has given us. So I would say, you know, that God does not always help those who help themselves. But one thing I do believe is that he is faithful in enabling his people to do what he calls them to do. And so as we seek to honor God with our lives, may we set aside our own personal agendas, may we set aside our desire for selfish gain, and may we seek instead to serve him and to serve others so that all nations would be blessed through us. And I think these are the lessons that we can take from our chapter here in Joshua 17. Let's pray. Father, we um, just thank you for this account in the Bible and the truth that you have um, presented us in it. Uh, Yes, some of these chapters are are just very tedious to read and, and hard to get through. But we thank you, Lord, that there is truth And we thank you, Lord, for uh, teaching us through your word. And Father, I pray that we would learn uh, from both the examples of uh, Zillow's daughters and um, the tribes of Joseph, um, that we would be faithful in doing what you are telling us to do, that we would be willing to work and be bold uh, in areas that you have already given to us. And Lord, may we just recognize the promises that you have given us and and not be afraid to claim them in order that we may be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to the nations, to advance your kingdom so that your glory on earth may increase. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please rise for worship?